Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome here to Seabreeze. Also want to welcome those of you who are joining us online. So glad that you could join us today. I think one of the great gifts of this past year is the reminder of how important people are, relationships are to us. We have learned that we can isolate ourselves for a short period of time, if necessary, but it's not long before we need to see each other and we need to relate in person. And that begins to cause us, more and more of us, to be willing to take some of the risks that we were unwilling to take nine months ago. I think that's part of what's behind this recent surge. It's not so much people are just defying the virus, but you can only be isolated for a certain amount of time before you just got to see people. So I think the need for meaningful relationships is clearer to more of us now than it was this time last year. And I think that's a gift that I hope we never forget out of this time. This is one of the handful of opportunities, I think, that COVID is giving us to reset our lives around the things that God says are really important. And we talk about things getting back to normal, and I'm looking forward to that as soon as possible as well. But there are some things that I hope never go back to normal for us. And this is one of those things, the importance of relationships. These are the kinds of things we're considering in this Reset message series. And so today we're talking about resetting our relationships. At the beginning of this whole virus thing back in March, church gatherings were considered to be non-essential. But that's now shifted. There's been a number of court hearings. The Supreme Court has weighed in on this. And we are now considered to be essential. We are now allowed to gather in ways that we weren't back in March. But I think the real victory for the church in all of this is not going to be that churches maybe have won the case of how essential we are in the courts of this land. I think the real victory would be if we over time win the case of how essential churches are in the hearts of the people of this land. That would be the victory. In order for that to happen, I think it needs to begin with us. We must first become convinced about how essential this kind of gathering is. If we don't see this as essential, as essential as it really is, then it won't really matter what the courts think and what the government thinks. Now, most Christians tend to view church primarily as a kind of a spiritual content provider. And that really misses one of the major points behind these kinds of gatherings. And in doing so, it diminishes the essential nature of these kinds of gatherings. At the beginning of the, the book of Romans, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome, we read this in Romans chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. Paul says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. So the Apostle Paul is writing this amazing letter, this book that became a part of the New Testament. And what he's saying in the first chapter to everyone who's listening or reading to this, he said, now, if, if you keep reading, if you keep listening, you're going to discover a lot of amazing content. And those of you who've read through the book of Romans, you know it's some of the most amazing content in all of the Bible. 
In fact, most agree that Romans is probably the best description of what it actually means to be a Christian and how to grow as a Christian. Amazing content. But in this first chapter, before any content is delivered, Paul informs his readers that reading this book is not going to be enough. And that's because content is never enough to make us strong. Now, I'm, I'm teaching content this morning. And I think it's going to be helpful. But I'm under no illusion that this is going to automatically make you stronger spiritually, personally. Because content's never enough. Paul is referring to a spiritual gift, he says, that is absolutely essential in order to make you strong. What is that gift? That gift is encouragement, he says. And encouragement is something that you can't deliver at a distance. You can't just deliver remotely. That's why Paul says, I'm sending you this letter, this content. It'll be really helpful, but I really can't wait to come and visit. I can't, I, I just long to see you. Because until I see you in person, we can't exchange this vital gift that is absolutely essential to make us strong. So let me reframe this. Paul is sending them one of the most amazing gifts of content in the history of the church. But he starts out by saying it's not enough. They need encouragement, and he needs encouragement. Now, content is a, a one-way street. In other words, it, it, it's delivered in one direction. You know, for example, I'm talking, you're listening. I'm presenting content to you. This, this is a one-way exchange. But encouragement is a, is a two-way street. It's a dialogue. It, it's a back-and-forth thing. That's why Paul says that you and I may be mutually, that's, that's a back-and-forth, mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Now, we can program content because it's, it's a one-way exchange. So, for example, I studied this week and the weeks before putting together the thoughts for the content I want to share with you today. I wrote it down. I've got notes here so I don't go off-road and start making stuff up. This is content. It can be programmed. The band chose the songs, the content of the songs, not this morning, but much earlier than today. And if we all need to go online like we did back in March and do all of this exclusively online, we can do that. We can deliver content online because content is, is one way. All you need is a, a broadcast mechanism and a receiving mechanism, and content has been delivered. But once the content part of this gathering event is over, one of the equally important parts of this event, unscheduled, takes place. And that's the gift exchange part. Paul says, I can't wait to see you again so that I may impart to you a spiritual gift. That is encouragement. So the gift exchange is what follows after this. And, and you can't program that because it requires two people talking to each other. And we don't uh, announce this because, well, it would just make it weird and awkward. You know, if we stopped and I said amen after the closing prayer and we said, all right, everyone, now share a spiritual gift with each other, that would be weird. It, you, you wouldn't know what to say, and normally you start out by asking someone how their week is, and so is that a gift? Or when, when do I get to the gift part? It needs to be more 
in the flow of a, an actual conversation. It's organic, and it can't be scheduled. It can't be programmed. You know, that's one of the reasons why we serve coffee. I don't know if you knew this. We serve coffee not because people can't get coffee anywhere else in this town. <laughs> no, a lot of you came with your favorite coffee. No, we serve coffee because it helps create an environment in which a few people just might stick around a little bit longer and they just might engage in a conversation and in that conversation they just might be of encouragement to someone else and someone else might be of encouragement to them and the gift exchange might take place. That's why we serve coffee. I should have warned the coffee people, we're going to have to stock up maybe on coffee today. <laughs> but that's why we do things like that. Now January the first of the year is known as kind of the fitness month, the, the, the month where more people than any other month decide to evaluate their health and kind of get back on track or initiate kind of a new fitness program. And there's all different kinds of ways they do it. There's different programs, there's different clubs you can join, but it always requires two kinds of effort, diet and exercise. There is no fitness program, there is no way for you to get healthy other than something to deal with your diet, something to deal with exercise. There is no trick to get around those two. And I say this because it's the same kind of thing when it comes to our health as followers of Jesus Christ, our spiritual health, our Christian health. There are two parts to it. There's the diet part and there's the exercise part. Content is the nutrition part of the Christian diet. This is what we talked about last week when Elliot spoke about resetting your mind and orienting your thoughts around the truth of God's word and thinking the thoughts that he has given us to think. That's, that's nutrition for the soul. That's, that's nutrition. That's, that's a proper diet for us to grow as followers of Jesus Christ. But the second part, the exercise part, that's relationships. Relationships are the exercise part of spiritual health. That's why Paul says... This gift is going to make you strong. Diet doesn't make you strong. It gives you the calories you need to exercise, which makes you strong. In the same way, just ingesting content isn't going to make you strong as a follower of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the back and forth. It's the mutual exchange of encouragement that God uses to strengthen us, to strengthen our spiritual muscles. So if you just focus on content, same thing happens to your soul that happens to your body. If all you're doing is eating and you're not exercising, you're going to gain more and more weight and you're going to get weaker and weaker. Same kind of thing happens to your soul. It's great to take in content, but if all you're doing is taking in content and you're not engaged in relationships where that content has the chance to be exercised and encouragement take place, you're just going to get spiritually larger and larger and weaker and weaker. Now, the challenge with relationships is relationships are not automatically encouraging, are they? I mean, just because you walk up to someone doesn't mean they're going to give you the gift of encouragement. In fact, there's a lot of people that you walk up to, they'll give you the gift of discouragement. They'll take, they'll take courage away from you. So, there is one quality that marks the difference between an encouraging person and a discouraging person. That one quality is humility. 
Humility makes the difference. Humility is the most powerful relationship strengthening muscle that there is. Now, it's not relationship pixie dust. It's not automatic. It's not instant. It needs to be exercised. It's not an instant fix. Relationships are complex. Problems sometimes are long running. So like any muscle, it must be exercised over time. But humility is almost always an immediate help to any relationship. Now the problem with this quality is that we are not naturally humble, are we? We're naturally the opposite. We're naturally self-oriented and, and prideful. So humility to us is not intuitive. It's, it's kind of like walking on our hands. It's something that must be learned and it takes a lot of effort to learn over time and it just, it almost never feels natural feels opposite to what we naturally do. So this morning, to help us reset our relationships and get us in a position where we can both give and receive this tremendous spiritual gift of encouragement that can make us strong, I want to share with you two verses about how to exercise our humility muscle. Really, these are going to present, I'm going to present you four humility exercises. So just like if you went to the gym and you said, you know what, I, I need to strengthen my core. That's a great place to start. This is the core of the Christian life. You need to strengthen your humility. Over and over again in Scripture we read, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So we've got to strengthen our core. So just like you would in the gym, someone's going to give you some exercises to begin to strengthen your core. I'm going to give you four exercises to strengthen your humility. So here are the, the two verses, and then we'll talk about the four exercises. Titus chapter 3 Verses 1 through 2. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward everyone. So the last phrase says to show true humility towards everyone. This is the summary statement of the previous four statements. The four statements that precede this are the practical how-to lists on the ways that true humility shows up in real life and is exercised and is strengthened. Now, the first word in these two verses is the word remind. I think it's important that it's remind and not tell. Tell simply means, again, inform, content. And that's good, but it's never enough because it's never enough to be informed about an exercise, you've got to be reminded. Why? Because exercises are done over time, consistently, not just once. So we need to be reminded over and over again to practice these four acts of humility in our relationships in order to reset them. So let's work our way through these four exercises. Exercise number one, follow authority. Now you might think, how does that help my relationships? I'll explain a little bit. Exercise number one, follow authority. As it says, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. Now, this is a challenge for us because we're Americans. And you don't get any more un-American than following authority. <laughs> and the reason is we're smart people. And often we find ourselves with any leader thinking, that's not the right thing to do. This is what you should do. Anybody could see this. So often we're in a position where we know better than our leaders, and we may be right. So why would we follow authority? 
The only reason we can think of is if we agree with the authority. But just to be clear, that's not called following, that's called agreeing. That's something different than following. When you follow, sometimes you agree, other times you don't agree, but you keep following. When you agree with someone, you're not technically following, you just happen to be going in the same direction for some period of time. Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about following when the authority asks you to do something wrong. I'm not talking about moral decisions. If authority asks you to do what is wrong, well, you shouldn't follow them. But most authority decisions are not moral decisions. Some are, but most aren't. Most decisions that authority makes are, they fall in the category of what you would call judgment calls. They're complex situations, you weigh the information and you've gotta make a decision and in the leadership's best understanding, this is their judgment. This is, this is what we're doing. Now, when it comes to judgment calls, there's always a lot of disagreement because it's a judgment call. And you might have a different judgment on the matter. For example, just as it pertains to us as a church, should we be meeting inside today or outside? Some of you think inside. Some of you think outside. Should we construct our new kids building over center court over there in a few weeks or should it be somewhere else on campus? Well, I've heard a lot of ideas about a lot of different places to put the kids building other than there. When should we start offering kids classes? All the family and the parents section say like today, now. Help us, please. Now, these are decisions that those of us who lead this church have spent hours and hours and hours thinking about and debating about and praying and asking God for wisdom on. And there's no verse in the Bible to say we should meet inside or outside. We should start kids' classes now or in three weeks or whenever. These are judgment calls. And for every decision that we make, there's going to be plenty who disagree. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not bad to disagree. All that means is you've got a brain. And that you're actually thinking about these things, which means you care about this church. Whenever someone has a suggestion for me, I realize all they're really saying is they're thinking about Seabreeze and they really care and they want Seabreeze to make good decisions. That's a good thing. The big question isn't whether we agree or disagree with leadership in any area. The question is whether we're willing to be part of something bigger than us, even if we don't get our way. So what does following authority have to do with relationships? What it shows to everyone who's paying attention, if you follow authority, it shows that you are not a a free-floating island unto yourself. It shows that you're anchored to something bigger than just what you think and what you want. Because if you bail on authority when you disagree or when it's hard, you're telling everyone who's really paying attention that given the right kind of circumstance and excuse, you can justify bailing on them too. Because there's nothing really more important to you than what you think and what you want. And if there is no authority in a person's life that's bigger than themselves, that makes them a dangerous person in relationships. It makes them a risky person in relationships. 
it would be foolish to trust them because they are their own boss. And they can probably justify almost anything then that fits their agenda. Now, people won't be able to articulate this, but people that have just common sense, they'll sense this instinctually. And they'll back off from someone who is not following any authority in their life. So that's exercise number one, follow authority. Exercise number two, be ready to do good. So what it says in Titus, to be ready to do whatever is good. That's a humble exercise. Let me ask you, are you ready to do good? I'll be honest, I'm not right now. Because I'm kind of busy doing this. So if you need some help, if you could just wait for a little bit. I'm kind of busy right now. My first thought would be this afternoon, but no, this afternoon I, I have a training event that I'm teaching at. And then there's another event that I have to be part of tonight. So if you could wait until tomorrow night, turns out actually I, I have a commitment tomorrow night, so that's not going to work out either. So actually, if it's something significant or big, it would be most convenient to me if you could wait until Friday. Looking at my week, just my week, just not every week, but this week's kind of full. So clearly, I'm not ready to do good, right? Why? Same reason you're probably not ready to do good. You've got plans. You've got commitments. You've got a calendar. So should we all just, for working, should we quit our jobs so we can just kind of hang out, ready to do good with our cell phone in hand, waiting for the call? Is that what this is saying? No. The point is this. Doing good is almost always inconvenient. So be ready for the inconvenience. Don't demand that the doing of good for somebody else perfectly fits your schedule and is not going to be inconvenient at all because if that's the case, you're just not going to do much good for people. Be more ready and willing to set aside your agenda in the moment so that you can do good. Now, what does that have to do with resetting your relationships and practicing humility? Well, we are closest and we are encouraged most by those that we are convinced really care about us. How do we know if someone actually cares about us? If they're willing to drop what they're doing to help us, we know. And that takes humility. It takes humility to set aside your agenda in the moment and serve someone. But honestly, I don't know of any faster acting turnaround or boost to a relationship than serving somebody, doing something practical that someone else really needs and is benefited by. That is an immediate strength to a relationship. So here's a question. Who are your 2 a.m. friends? You, maybe you've heard this idea. A 2 a.m. friend is someone that you could call in the middle of the night and they would actually get out of bed to help you. Now, if you don't have any 2 a.m. friends, how do you find 2 a.m. friends? Well, you become one. Now, to be clear, it's almost never actually 2 a.m. It's more often 8 a.m. on Saturday or 7 p.m. on Tuesday when help is needed and can be given. So the time is, is not the point. The inconvenience is the point. Who would be willing to be inconvenienced to help you in a moment of need. People know 
when you are sacrificing to do them good. And they do not forget that. They don't forget that. It takes humility to be inconvenienced and do good for somebody else. But you know what also takes humility? To ask for help. A lot of reason people don't do good is because they don't know what somebody needs because we're all busy in our arrogance acting like we don't need any help at all. And that just isolates us. So it takes humility both on the, yes, I'll come help you to do good, and on the, hey, could you come help me do good side. It takes humility. But without the humility on both sides, there's not much good that's done for each other, and therefore the humility muscle isn't exercised, and the relationships grow weak, and our spiritual health is weakened. So humble yourself. Ask for help. And get ready to set aside your plans to help. Relationships will never be able to grow if we're not actually helping, doing good for each other. So that's exercise number two. Be ready to do good. Exercise number three, slander no one. Slander no one. This is what it actually says. To slander no one. Pretty clear. In other words, do not speak poorly of another person. Now, Many conversations occur at the expense of someone who isn't there. They're kind of behind the back, negative conversations about someone. Now, why do we do this kind of thing? Pride. What's really going on is we're making a case for why we are better than somebody else. And there is always an audience for this. There's an appetite for this. This is junk food for the soul. In fact, this is a real quick way for two people to feel a connection. That's what junk food does. It's a real quick way for you to feel full and then feel really bad for a long time. That's what these kind of conversations are. It's, it's almost an instant way for there to be a, a feeling of a bond between somebody. You know, you get two total strangers together talking badly about somebody else, and it's almost like they're instant friends. Because they're feasting on somebody else. And they're feeling better about themselves because, well, what everybody can agree on is we're not as bad as someone. And here's the someone that we're using to feel better about ourselves. But this kind of conversation, like junk food, exacts a terrible price on those who do it. If you talk about somebody negative behind your back, you're also saying something to those you're talking to. You're telling everyone who's in that conversation that they better never open up and tell you anything about themselves. Because if they do, they know that as soon as they leave, there's a really good possibility you're going to start talking about them behind your back, behind their back. It is a relationship killer to slander somebody to talk bad about somebody else. And yet, it's what most people feed on as a regular diet in their conversations. You see, behind the laughter, behind the, the feeling of closeness, the artificial feeling of closeness that happens in those conversations when we're talking about somebody else and we're laughing and we're saying, yeah, and, and we're going more and more into how silly they are or how bad that decision was they made, 
behind that conversation and that laughter, everyone is thinking, ooh, I better watch out what I say with this group. I better not let them see any of my weaknesses. In fact, I better get some dirt on them in case I need it to counter what they say about me. You know, I wish, I wish that there would be a study. I don't think there can be, but I wish there would be a study that could quantify how much slander costs business annually. I think it would be staggering to see how many good ideas never see the light of day in a business environment because the environment is so toxic, it's so full of talking bad about other people behind their back that nobody wants to take the risk to offer any new ideas. And the business suffers. It takes a great deal of humility to build somebody up rather than tear them down. But if you do, relationships grow. That's humility exercise number three. Humility exercise number four, be considerate in conflict. In my experience, it is so hard to be humble when you're mad. It says here to be peaceable and considerate. Peaceable and considerate are not just two words on a list that happen to fall in this order. They're part of a phrase that addresses one of the common experiences in relationships, and that is conflict. If you're never upset with someone, it's probably because you're not working closely with them to accomplish anything important. You know, we tend to think conflict erupts, and that means, uh-oh, we got to get out of this relationship. This is a bad relationship. But usually, not always, but usually what it really means is, okay, finally we're close enough to get irritated with each other, and finally we're working on something that's important enough to each other that we got enough thoughts and opinions that we're sideways now. So it's an opportunity. But we're never more arrogant, like I said, than when we're upset, when we're mad. So we need to grab for the humility reset button. Two parts of this exercise, peaceable and considerate. The word peaceable literally means to not be a brawler, to not be a fighter. The moment at which, if you're in conflict with someone, the moment at which you have crossed from pride to humility is when you decide that your top goal is not to win this argument or this conflict. Now that takes some doing sometimes. If you're married, you know there's some times where it's like, I'll burn this place down to prove that I'm right. That is dangerous stuff. So you're not exercising humility muscle until you say, you know what? My top goal is not to make my point to win, to be peaceable. Considerate, second part of this exercise, means to decide to listen. These two often go together. Okay, my top goal isn't to win, so what's my top goal now? I've got to figure out what's going on here. If your top goal is to win, you're not listening, you're talking. And usually their goal is to win, and so they're talking, and so the two of you are just talking at each other, and no one's listening. So decide, my goal isn't to win, my goal is to listen. It takes a lot of humility to do both of these. And I'm telling you, it'll feel like you're walking on your hands, but you can learn how to do this. You know, the deepest of all relationships are with those that we've gone through conflict with and come out the other side. You know, the, my deepest relationship is with my wife. She's also the one that I've had more conflicts with than anybody else. But it's through those conflicts that I know, you know what, she's not going to bail on me. I'm not going to bail on her. 
One of the top concerns we have in a relationship is what will people do if they ever get to really know us? Like the part of us that we try to keep anyone else from knowing about. It's when conflict erupts and the relationship survives that you now know here's a relationship you can count on. So these are the four humility exercises. Now if you're are using this month of January to kind of evaluate your physical fitness, you've got some goals, you want to improve your physical health, how do you do it? Do you just decide that you really want to be healthier in 2021? Well, that's a start, but that's never going to get it done. I mean, we all know what you got to do is you got to set some goals because intentions don't accomplish anything. Plans are how you accomplish things. So you got to make some plans. I made a decision on my own physical fitness this year that what I want to do on the exercise part is I want to put in 2,000 miles on my bike this year. And I have to make it clear, non-electric assisted 2,000 miles, okay? <laughs> I mean real 2,000 miles. I'm not putting down electric bikes, but real 2,000 miles. And again, that's not enough. So I've broken it down as I need to ride about 50 miles a week. That leaves some margin for some weeks where I'm not going to be able to. So that's my goal. It's the same kind of thing when it comes to relationship health and this humility thing. Set a goal. Set a relationship goal. Pick one or more of these four humility exercises and get specific. Maybe this is the year you decide, you know what, I'm, I'm going to really make a commitment to this church. I'm going to follow this church. This is the place I'm going to put my shoulder behind where we're going, our mission, and I'm, I'm going to do what I can to advance it. Or just renew that commitment. Maybe it's join a growth group. There's a lot of relationship opportunities that come out of a growth group, a lot of gift exchange that can take place in a growth group. I don't know what it is. That's for you to decide. And if you're really serious about the goal, tell somebody else about it. You know, I debated about whether to tell any of you about my 2,000-mile goal because now I'm stuck with it. <laughs> and to be honest with you, I, I had a higher number, and now when I decide, okay, I'm going to tell people, then I came up with a little lower number that I think <laughs> is more realistic because I know how this is going to go. Not many of you will remember this at all, but there's going to be a handful of you come July. They're going to ask me, so how's it going? And I'm going to have to be honest. So the decision to tell someone is kind of the moment at which, for a lot of us, we decide, okay, so we're really, really going to do this, right? So I say that because whatever your, your goal is on the exercise start, or the relationship side, the exercise side of your faith, set a goal, and then tell at least one, maybe a handful of other people. And let's see what God does in this new year. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the privilege to gather and share spiritual gifts with each other. I just thank you for how so many here have been of encouragement to me over these last months. And what a breath of fresh air it was when we began to see each other, as Paul said. I, I longed to see so many of these people, and it's just been such a joy to be able to do this.
And Father, I pray that you would grow us as a church and that from the strength that you bring, that we would be a light in this community and that more and more people would be attracted to you through us. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.